0: Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Reel. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land the Awabakal and Warramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live.
1: Welcome to Notable Newcastle Authors. This is Michael Blacksland talking to Professor Barry Maitland, uh, author of numerous books. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us today, Barry. Um, the crime novel is something that obviously you're very, very well known for. I mean, it's a, it's a genre that continues to be very, very popular uh, and something I think that a lot of people want to write. Um, it's something you've
2: stuck with over the years. Why, why is that? I have, yes. Um, before I wrote the first crime novel, I'd had several failed novels uh, rejected by everybody inside I'd collected a big box of rejection slips and there was something I think about the crime novel when I first started thinking about it and writing it that I think what it was it disciplined me the crime novel is actually quite a disciplined form you can't stray away from the the murder from the story of mm-hmm. the murder you can't indulge yourself too much you know in in flourishes in other areas that you want to talk about and that I think gives a kind of momentum to the writing, which appealed to me and was good for me, I think, so you 're on to about 20,
1: twenty odd novels now, which of course are very well read all over the world. Uh, explain just you 've got two basic series that you've been writing because the Bell the trees uh trilogy is a is a later one, and your current other series you're actually working on
2: on another book at the moment The, the series that I began with was the Brock and Kohler stories mm-hmm. of uh, set in London to police figures from the Metropolitan Police. And I didn't realise to begin with that I was going to be writing a series. I just wrote Mm. a a one-off. And the publishers took it up and they said, we like the, the two characters. What about a series? And I thought, how do you write a series? How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it going? And I thought, well, one way of doing that would be to actually set each novel in a different part of London. Because like any big city, it has so many little villages and enclaves and districts, each with their own history, their own characters, uh, the work they do and all the rest of it. So each one becomes a kind of exploration of that little place and uh, it becomes the inspiration. So I really, when I'm writing a novel, I start with the place.
1: There is a lot of research, I take, of the case. There is. I
2: mean, I love that aspect of the crime novel that the murder allows the detective to go into anybody's world. And the idea of, of exploring other people's enthusiasms or small worlds that they love, you know, like acting, uh, appeals to me and it adds another sort of dimension to the novel. That's certainly one of the themes there. The other one that I've discovered with that first novel and which has appealed to me over the years is the idea of an historical dimension to the story. I see. A murder happens. And the story moves forward. The police come. there's the next day. You know, the forensic tests and all this investigation goes on. But at the same time, the police are working backwards in time. What happened ten minutes before the murder? An hour before? What happened the day before? What led up to this? And sometimes you can get then the idea of of the the origins of the story actually being some distance back in time. I mean, in the first book, The Marxist, is, yep. it was actually 100 years back in time. Right. And um, to me, that gives a sort of perspective depth to the story, which I, I like.
3: This is how my novel Dark Mirror begins, in which we witness a murder in one of London's most famous libraries, the London Library, founded by Charles Dickens and other famous authors in the 19th century which stands in a corner of St. James's Square in the centre of London. Nigel Ogilvy hurried up the stairs to the reading room on the first floor and made his way, panting slightly, to the big windows overlooking the square. It was a dazzling spring morning, the sun glistening on new foliage bursting from the trees in the central garden, so that it seemed as if King William on his bronze horse was prancing through a brilliant green cloud. Nigel spotted the familiar figure sitting on a bench not far from the statue, her head bent over a book, and watched as she wiped her mouth with a paper napkin, then slowly gathered up the wrapper and drink bottle by her side. He reached into his pocket for his mobile phone and took a picture, capturing the moment as Marion got to her feet, and the sun caught her setting her red hair alight. She began to walk towards the library, tossing her rubbish into a bin, her coat was unbuttoned, and he watched the swell of her thighs beneath the dress as she strode, head up. Live, he thought, that was the word. He felt a small quickening of his heartbeat and turned away, making his way across the reading room to where he'd earlier left his book. Settling himself in the red leather armchair, he opened the heavy volume on his knee and waited, eyes unfocused on the text. And here she came at last, Marion Summers. Making her entrance up the main stair and looking more pre Raphaelite than ever, with her long flowing skirt and that mane of thick red hair, and complexion so pale, deathly pale this afternoon, that he could make out the faint blue line of the artery ticking in her throat. Marian paused beside her table, splaying her fingers on its surface for support. There was a faint sheen of perspiration on her forehead which was creased by a frown as if she were trying to make sense of something. She grimaced suddenly, raising her hand abruptly to her mouth and reaching with the other for her chair. But before she could grasp it, she staggered and doubled over with a moan and sank to her knees. Oh! Her cry was cut off as she was abruptly sick, her body convulsing violently, sending the chair tumbling onto its back. Consternation spread out in ripples across the reading room. People rising to their feet, craning to see what had happened. But Nigel remained where he was, eyes bright, photo camera in hand, fastidiously recording every detail. She was being sick again, poor thing, writhing in agony as she retched over the red carpet. One of the librarians was running forward. What is it? she demanded. What's wrong? Is there a doctor here? Actually, there were six doctors in the room but none of the medical kind, and they were quite unable to help. "'Are you calling an ambulance?' she demanded, and Nigel froze, realising suddenly that she was staring straight at him. "'Oh, yes, absolutely!' He dialed triple nine, feeling himself the focus of attention now as people gratefully averted their eyes from poor Marion. He spoke fast and clearly to the operator, feeling he was doing it rather well, And when they wanted to know his name, he gave it with a little thrill of excitement. He would be on the official record. Airways, the librarian said, we have to make sure she doesn't choke. But that was easier said than done, for Marion's body was racked by convulsive spasms. It was some minutes before this subsided enough for the librarian to bravely stick her fingers into the young woman's mouth to make sure she hadn't swallowed her tongue. Kneeling in the mess, she cradled Marion's head on her lap and stroked her hair soothingly. The wildflowers scattered on the carpet all around. Nigel got some good shots of that. Someone was gathering up the contents of Marion's bag, which had spilled over the floor. Nigel stooped to help. He picked up a hairbrush with strands of her red hair coiled around its bristles, and reluctantly put it back into the bag. But he palmed the computer memory stick lying beside it it into his pocket.
0: Thanks for listening to Chats with notable Newcastle authors. Are you low on time? Or do you know someone that's sight impaired? You can also access our audiobooks via the Newcastle Library app.
1: Challenges taking taking the reader on that journey with you as as, yes. as well there with um, um, the Brock and collar series uh, it was uh, interesting that people responded to the fact that it was the first time that there'd been a a, a male and a female police officer really working together which That's right. I suppose now, you see that thing a lot, but then it just just
2: wasn't... uh, Uh, That's right. Well, when I started thinking about this, I'd been in Australia for about six years, uh, but I didn't have any contacts here with the police or the legal profession. But in London, my niece and her husband work for the Metropolitan Police, and she was working for the forensic science laboratories just at the time DNA was you know just being sort of discovered and he was a copper on the beat Mm -hmm. so he took me out on the beat with him and she gave me all the latest lowdown on the new technology and that was a wonderful i mean i couldn't have done it without that but what appealed to me was this was at a time when the metropolitan police like all police forces were very very much male dominated yes and here was she a woman working in that situation not not as a a detective, but still working in that situation. And I thought it was at a time, I suppose, when there were a lot of very strong women novelists, uh, crime novelists of coming out, uh, um, you know, Morel Day and, and, and uh, American authors. And um, it appealed to me to have then a strong female character. The idea of seeing the story from two different points of view also appealed to me. But I didn't want the kind of typical master-servant kind of relationship that you Mm. get, you know, Mm. with with Morse, say, you know, not now, you know, know, (laughs) I wanted them to be equals. And and although the woman was a novice in the first book, she's gradually become a more and more powerful figure in the series.
1: One of the other interesting things
2: you're able to do is one was divorced, one was single.
1: So you're able to look as well at their, at their personalities and yes. develop their their backstory or forward story that's as well. That's
2: right, exactly, yes. If I'd realised that I was going to be writing a story, I, I would have um, plotted it more carefully. Yes. some of all this you, Where
1: should these people be <laughs> in 10 novels time rather than <laughs> going, oh, but that's, yes. That's right, yes. yes.
2: It does help to have that idea that. People want to know a little bit more.
1: And on that a little bit more as well, you were saying that, that part of the uh, challenge there is to do the investigating into the, into the stories that you're writing, whether it's theatre or all those sort of things, or philately and whatever, and, and medical science. Do you occasionally get experts sending you a text going, no, you're wrong, he wouldn't have done that. Is that to, one of the
2: pitfalls? It would be, certainly, yes. I try to guard against it. I had this very good friend, he was a senior pathologist at John Hunter sadly he's died recently but um he uh, would always read my texts Mm -hmm. before they went to the publisher and and he would say oh no that wouldn't happen like that and oh yeah you know that you could do that which was very very helpful um and sometimes i've asked for instance a dentist to look at it where there was some particular thing about teeth but of course i mean the situation with research has been totally transformed since I started writing. It was so difficult when I began to, of course. to get information about anything. Now, you know, I, I can sit at my computer and I can watch a number 103 bus going down this London street. You know, and I, I, how would you find that out, you know, 20 years ago?
3: This is the opening of my latest Brock and Colo novel, again set in London, The Promised Land. It starts in another London square. Charles Pettigrew shut down the computer on his desk and went over into the main office. It was deserted, both the women having left for the weekend. Angela, his senior and only editor, had taken the uncorrected Burdekin proofs home with her. He switched off the lights, locked the office, and made his way down to the street door, where he glanced, as he always did, at the polished brass plate that declared... Golden Press. Autumn had come in earnest this week, dead leaves slippery underfoot, plucked by the swirling wind from the trees in Golden Square. He passed by the statue of George II, or was it Charles II, he was uncertain which, and made his way to Leicester Square, where he caught the tube out to Hampstead, and followed the same walk he took most evenings down the high street. He'd lived here almost all his life, loved Hampstead and hated it, it was full of ghosts of his parents and of the authors whom they had venerated Keats, Lawrence, Wells, Fowles, Huxley, Milne, and War now commemorated on the blue plaques that peppered the streets. He walked on to Garden Gate, stopped for a whisky at the White Horse, bought a baguette at Le Pain on the corner of South End Road, formerly a bookshop, Booklovers' Corner, where George Orwell once worked. Ghosts. Everywhere he reached home, fourteen Parliament Hill Close, a late Victorian red brick house, his grandfather and father had both owned before him. A few letters waited in the wire basket behind the front door, and he carried them through to his study and poured himself a scotch, sighed, loosened his tie, settled himself in the old leather armchair. In this room, his grandfather and father had drunk whisky with the great authors of their day many of whom they had published. Golden Press was truly Golden Press then, a byword for contemporary British fiction of the highest order. No longer. He flicked through the mail. Bills, entreaties, flyers, and a large buff envelope addressed to him in printed felt-pen letters. Inside were a single photocopied sheet and a short covering note handwritten. Dear Mr. Pettigrew, I believe this may be of interest to you. If so, you may contact me, Shari Mitra, There was a mobile phone number. He frowned, turning to what appeared to be a photocopy of the first page of a manuscript written on an old mechanical typewriter with a threadbare ribbon. A handwritten message scrawled across the top. The manuscript read as follows. The Promised Land, a novel by Eric Blair. The Strand Hotel, Rangoon, six in the evening. I was staying there for a few days in the course of business from the Viceroy's office in Delhi. That evening I was sitting in the bar before going through to the restaurant. It was busy with traders, talking about their dealings in Burma and the latest news from home, and every table was taken. I noticed a tall, fair-haired man enter and look around in vain for a seat. He was different from the others, bearded, clothes rumpled, his skin weathered and discoloured by the sun, and on impulse I indicated the free seat at my table. He joined me, and introduced himself as Ralph Halliday, an agent for one of the big timber exporters. He explained that he'd just returned from an extended trip in eastern Burma, looking for new teak stands in the high country along the frontier with China. We went on to spend the evening together, during which he told me a remarkable story, about a man he had encountered in the remote jungle who had founded a unique community based upon radical utopian principles. Pettigrew looked back to the note at the top of the page. The handwriting was shaky, and it took him a moment to decipher the words. I hereby give this manuscript and all rights to its publication to my dear friend Das Gupta. The novel, The Promised Land, is not to form part of the GOP portfolio. E. Blair, Cranham, 12 August, 1949. Charles Pettigrew sat motionless, pondering, his forehead creased in a frown. It was a scam, of course. It had to be. And yet... In 1935, Eric Blair was living in a flat in Parliament Hill, not a hundred yards away. In June of that year, he published a novel, Burmese Days, under the pseudonym George Orwell. And one warm evening in July, according to family legend in the Pettigrews, Charles' grandfather Mortimer had drunk whiskey with the 32-year-old budding author in this very room quizzing him about his future plans before they sat down to dinner. Orwell sat in this chair that I'm sitting in now, Charles thought. It's like a message from the past, a lifeline from old Grandpa Mortimer, for God knows Golden Press needed a lifeline now. In business, Grandpa Mortimer had told him, you must be ruthless, boy. I let young Orwell slip through my fingers. He went with Victor Galangst. Don't make that mistake. In business, you must go for the jugular. The more Pettigrew thought about it, the more he felt a strange and unfamiliar relation growing inside him. For so many years, he had resigned himself to impotence and frustration as golden press slid downhill towards oblivion. Perhaps this, at last, was the coup that had always eluded him. You must be ruthless, he told himself go for the jugular.
0: Newcastle boasts some award-winning and inspired authors who live and work in our city. You can access some of these stories and more via Newcastle Library's website or app.
1: The trees trilogy, of course, uh, is is set in Australia, yes. including Newcastle. Did that mean that you had to write any differently
2: or look at things differently? Yes, it did. It did. I had written one standalone previously called Bright Air, which was set in Australia. Yes. But still, when it came to writing a police detective mystery uh, like uh, the Beltree trilogy, that really required a complete change for me. And again, I was very fortunate. I got introductions to the Homicide Squad in, in Sydney and I went and talked to them. And uh, I also had a... Had any
1: of them read your novels?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Come along, have a chat. <laughs> and a lovely copper here, he, he, would, he read the first book and he said, uh, you know, kind of shook his head, and he said, no, no Australian cops don't speak like that you know they have their own lingo mm. you know? I mean they don't say sir to a senior officer like right the Met- metropolitan police yeah, would yeah. do you know it's yeah. gov or bo- yeah. boss but not mm. sir little things like that and by that time I suppose I'd been in Australia long enough to sort of have a sense of the language more
1: as a professor of architecture you've retired now of course which gives you more time to uh, devote to novels I suppose how has architecture instilled things in your novels or the way that you do it or
2: i'm sure you found the same thing as a journalist that your profession actually shapes the way that you think and the way you approach problems so i suppose that, that the stories are affected by that background mm. so i tend to sort of place is very important the, the location the setting mm. for the story is very important for a building as as for a, mm-hmm. the stories and also i think the the going from the general to the particular the idea of a sort of underlying structure. Yeah. Uh, 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 and um, there's a phrase in architecture called a promenade architectural, which is the experience of going through a well-designed building, you know, the space. You're outside, you go through a, a doorway, and the space becomes darker and lower. You move through, and then it opens out, and then, you know, you, you're you're guided to one side or another. The floor drops away. You know, all this yeah, yeah. is like a, almost like a... A piece of theatre or, mm-hmm. or, or or a novel, you know, yeah. the this, this sequence of events,
1: yeah.
2: diversity and variety. Yes.
1: Your your next project or the project you have underway at the at the moment?
2: I'm working on another Brock and Brockenbrough novel, and um, this one's going to be about um, art fraud. I'm quite interested in art fraud,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I think it's uh,
1: it's funny the number no- the number of people you see around doing. Uh, detective novels it's a very very popular genre and i, I take it that that um, what you'd find is that people can lose themselves in particularly if it's well written as yours are people can lose themselves in in a lot of the uh, a lot of the interesting facts and figures and that sort of yes, thing as well yes
2: i think so it's for me uh, realism is important so the research and all that is important but it's also important in the sense that it it does take the reader straight into another world, you know, and you, you can imagine it around you, the characters and the, the environment, the, the feeling of that world. And that other world is something
1: that uh, we hope will continue for a very long time through, uh, through your fascinating novels. Professor Barry Maitland, thank you very much for talking with us today.
2: Thank you very much, Michael.
1: Thanks for listening to Notable Newcastle Authors. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to keep our story going.
0: This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production.